Lord God, we thank you for these descriptions. Sometimes for us, they are dizzying in their detail, and because it is something that is far off from our own personal experience, because we were not there, it sounds difficult for us and sometimes is difficult for us to comprehend what this all must have been like, but help us today both to understand what you were doing then for the Israelites, then what you have done in Jesus Christ, and now what you are doing in us, for us, and through us. Be with us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are accustomed to statements like these. God is holy. God is good. God is just. God is true. God is merciful. They sound familiar to us. Today, we begin with a statement that, while similar in its structure, should actually or perhaps does seem a little bit less familiar to us and maybe even a less acceptable to our ears. And the statement is simply this, God is beautiful. He is not ugly. He is inherently and wholly beautiful, and all of the other words that Scripture uses to describe Him can be applied to that as well. He is full of splendor. He is full of majesty. He is lovely. On the front of your bulletins, I posted a verse that is familiar to many of us. David here in Psalm 27, 4, expresses his desire to dwell in the house of the Lord so that he might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, whatever complexities we may run into describing an invisible God and however it is that he reveals himself to us, nevertheless, both the metaphor and the reality can be aptly applied to say that God is beautiful and what David and what we should also want is the opportunity to gaze upon that beauty. To call something beautiful is, of course, to make a value statement, a value judgment. It is to say that something else is not beautiful, and that which I am describing as beautiful is particularly beautiful. And therefore, many can look at a statement such as, God is beautiful or anything as beautiful, and say that this is an invalid statement, at least as it relates to truth. Because after all, why should you make a statement that implies that something is not as beautiful as something else? And by what standard would you measure whether or not something is beautiful? Our culture sings to us, says to us, that you're beautiful that everything is beautiful, that everyone is beautiful. But God makes distinctions between materials, between craftsmanship, between people. God himself is beautiful. He's truly beautiful. He's objectively beautiful in his being, Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The tabernacle, and then subsequently, of course, the temple, were designed, amongst other things, to communicate this reality. God 
is beautiful. And so this tabernacle and the temple were beautiful in and of themselves. They were beautiful in the materials that were used. We've looked at those. They're not, gold isn't just beautiful because a bunch of people said it was beautiful. God recognizes a beauty in gold, and thus it is a critical material in the construction of the tabernacle in the very center of the tabernacle itself. We looked at the beauty and the excellence in the craftsmanship, and also the tabernacle is beauty in its design and in the order of it. God's beauty is an orderly beauty. The tabernacle was made exactly according to the specifications that were given by God to Moses. Those, of course, were verbally given to him. They are inscripturated for us. That is to say, they are written down. And Moses saw something as well. Whether he was looking into heaven or whether he had a type of vision of what this tabernacle should be like is not exactly clear for us. But nevertheless, you shall make it exactly according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That's the command that is given him to, the, given to him. So Moses had no freedom as it related to the design and the order of the tabernacle. He had no ability to say, listen, the access, ingress, exits out of the tabernacle might be facilitated if we put another door right here, another flap over here. He couldn't say, you know, some uplighting would be great. It would really make this tabernacle shine. He couldn't say, I like this paint color better than that paint color. God didn't say to him, listen, I would just like a place kind of in the midst of you wherein I could dwell. I leave it to you to figure it out. Rather, God gave him all of the specifics. Now, there's some discussion about even with all of the detail that we have in these passages, and it's quite extensive, especially as we read it, it would probably be quite different to us if we were actually doing the work because we might get into this and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a step missing here. It looks like a lot to us. But if we were actually doing this, we, we might be thwarted by not seeing some things. So we don't know. Were there other verbal instructions that were given because Moses saw an image of this? There are things that we don't know. But we have a lot of specificity in what God has presented here. God's presence and the worship of God were designed and determined by him. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, of course, Deuteronomy is a sermon given by Moses on the edge of the promised land when they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And one of the things that Moses warns is you've got to be careful of idolatry when you go into this land. You're going to see a lot of different peoples. You're going to interact with a lot of different peoples, and you have to be careful of this. So what he says to them is, do not inquire about their gods, saying... How did these nations serve their gods that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Don't look at their practices. Don't look at the way that they worshiped and say, gee, maybe we should add this element to our worship. Maybe, you know, that fire burns really nicely. 
That oil that they're using, wow, that's a great oil. We should use that oil in our worship services or the way they do that sacrifice or the way they have constructed that altar. Nice. Don't do it, God says. And then it caps with this verse. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. As it relates to the worship of God and, in particular, to the construction and assembly of this tabernacle, you do it the way God said. You don't get inventive with it. You don't get creative in the tabernacle. Rather, you follow God's architectural plans. God decides how he will be worshipped in form and content from the dimensions of the tabernacle down to, and I know we didn't use this, the utensils that are used within the tabernacle, from how the ark should be shaped to how many curtain loops there should be, and yes, the undergarments that the priests, at least, should wear as they serve in the tabernacle. If ever, if ever this was true, this old saying is true here. In the tabernacle, there was a place for everything, and everything had its place. No freedom. You couldn't look at the tabernacle, and Moses say, you know, I think that table would look a lot better over there. Or just a little, a, a few more tables around here. Let's add some pews into this thing. There was no option for any of that. It was designed by God. Think about this for a moment. I mentioned it last week, and I want you to think about it again. For hundreds of years, generation after generation of Israelites had been in the service of their Egyptian masters. So they had learned, of course, in their service, a whole variety of trades, a number of things that they did. And no doubt, as in most cultures, those trades would have been passed along and all of the skills and the tips that go along with them. And so probably, in most cases, families were good at particular things, or tribes may have been good at particular items. Maybe you apprenticed outside of your family or outside of your tribe, but generally speaking, you probably became known for your excellence in, say, embroidery or woodworking or metallurgy of some type. But can you imagine great-great-grandparents of these people who were in the wilderness probably thought, Again, I have to serve the Egyptians. I have to use these great skills that I've developed in making things, vain things, vain, beautiful things for the Egyptian gods, for the Egyptians to enjoy. And now, and now, the craftsmen from generations of what appeared to be vanity are about to be redeployed. The skills that have been passed along for hundreds of years are now redeployed by God for construction of this dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. Redeemed. All of those seemingly fruitless and wasted years are now redeemed as God dwells with them. I'm not going to try. Uh, frankly, it would be beyond my competency uh, to try to describe the nature of the artistry itself that is contained for us and described for us in 
these chapters. Others have done that better than I could. Uh, one thing that we did, a book that we put on the back table back there, <laughs> which is not there today, so I <laughs> have to get it another, another time. Uh, Phil Reichen wrote a book called Art for God's Sake. Uh, it's about a 60-page little booklet, I guess you could call it. This uh, details a few things and has a lot of good references in it if you'd like to pursue further understanding of the arts in general from a Christian perspective and certainly of the tabernacle itself. But we know that there were a wide variety of artistic media that were employed in the tabernacle and even a wide variety of artistic styles that were used uh, that have been called by uh, Jean Vith, by Francis Schaeffer, along lines that are familiar to us. So there was non-representational art, art for the sake of beauty that wasn't necessarily done to symbolize something. And then, of course, there were things that were symbolic, and the symbolism is oftentimes explained to us. And then there were things that were representational, so pomegranates and cherubim and uh, animals certainly coming into the temple, all sorts of animals and trees that adorned the inside of the temple itself, if not the tabernacle exactly. It was beautiful, and it was orderly in form and in function. It united those two things together. It was full of meaning, and it was good. One might say that the tabernacle was fearfully and wonderfully made, which is to say, a lot like you were made by God. A lot like this earth was made by God. And I'm saying that to affirm for us that which we've stated a number of times, but bears repeating, namely, that creational language saturates permeates this section of Scripture on the tabernacle design. Don't think that this is coming out of thin air. Six times in chapters 25 through 31, and the Lord said to Moses, the seventh time he says it is the Sabbath. Now, that's literary structure to say, wait a minute, I know some other pattern where six times the Lord said and it happened. And then on the seventh time he said that, everybody rested, including him. Creational language is used throughout. The materials are materials that we find in creation. At the end of this building, Moses inspects the tabernacle in the same way that God reviews the creation. And Moses finished the work. That's almost exactly the same language from Genesis. And God finished the work. Moses then blesses as God had blessed. The tabernacle then imitates Eden. The tabernacle is not a new thing. It's Eden, redeveloped. Eden, a dwelling place of God in the midst of the world, a dwelling of God with man. It is a statement that brings order out of chaos. That is what creation did. Chaos ruled prior to creation. God brings creational order and demonstrates it most clearly in Eden. The tabernacle then becomes a recreation 
of that which was lost. Thus, art and the artistry of the tabernacle imitating life, imitating the living one who had spoke into existence creation. And both Eden and the tabernacle, actually as we read them, are themselves images, imitations of heaven itself. They are representative of what heaven is actually like. And so, our lives, the Israelites' lives, should actually imitate the art, because the art, in fact, imitates heaven. Image bearers should imitate beauty and order. We love beauty and order. There's a sense to which we all appreciate beauty and order, and let me just say, and I'm not going to go into this in much detail, we also all know the dangers that are associated with beauty and order. Beauty and order are good things, but they can lead to vanity, to pride, to formalism, to externalism. Ezekiel 28 describes the prince of Tyre, and it seems to be a metaphor not only describing the prince of Tyre, but of Satan himself. And amongst its descriptions, listen to this and listen to the language. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was covering sardius, topaz, and diamond, and then a further list. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on that day that you were created. And then later, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. As much as we might talk about beauty and order within this tabernacle, we have to see that those very same elements that can be used for the glory of God can become the very means of idolatry, the very means of the fall. It is exactly these things of which we are speaking today and saying they are excellent and praiseworthy which cause the downfall of Satan. His beauty was his undoing. What does this all have to do with Jesus, who, according to Isaiah, when he came to this earth as the Son of God incarnate, had no form or a majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him? He was ugly. The tabernacle was beautiful. Can you imagine all the time you would have spent, let's just take an example, as an embroiderer, trying to get things just so, for the sash or the turban or whatever was your particular part that you were working on? And you worked on it, and you were as precise as you could, and the dyers got the dyes just right for the fabrics just right. And you you get it all done, 
and you put it on top of Aaron and Aaron's sons and the other priests, and Moses takes blood and throws it on. And you kind of look at that and go, wait a minute. All, all of the work? There's no tide. There's nothing to get the stain out. There's no stain stick. All of the work that we put into this, and you're going to desecrate it? With blood? No, I'm going to consecrate it, actually, with blood. The tabernacle, in all of its beauty, had to be made ugly by the presence of death because of the reality of sin. That's what happened to man. It's what happened to this earth, the tabernacle, and Jesus as well. Man was created by God beautiful. The garden was created by God orderly. And it was desecrated by sin, by death, by blood spread across it. The Son of God, He was never created, as we read in the Nicene Creed. He has always been very God of very God, eternally begotten of the Father and not made. He was always full of splendor and majesty and beauty from all eternity. So why is he so ugly? He had to become ugly. The temple had to get splattered with blood to reflect what had happened in the world. The beauty of the creation defiled. He took on flesh, and while he was beautiful internally, in his character, in his obedience, he became marred externally by the ugliness of sin. He himself became a blood-splattered, dead tabernacle so that we might become the beautiful ones of God. A few of the disciples got a glimpse of the beauty of the eternal Son of God at the transfiguration. They were overwhelmed, and they wanted to stay right there on that mountain. The disciples saw a certain level of the beauty of Jesus Christ at his resurrection appearances. John got to see the beauty of the ascended Jesus, the glorified Jesus in heaven, and tell us about it. And so we sing, fairest Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior, the loveliest husband, and we opened up with crown and with many crowns, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. Even the wounds themselves have become beautiful as they've been glorified by God. And as for order, 
In addition to beauty, the sun did everything exactly according to the will of his father. As the father commanded him, so he did it. So he lived. So he came into this world to fulfill all that had been said about him. And the heavenly city wherein he dwells is exact, it is orderly, it is beautiful, with no tabernacle or with no temple in it. Because the one with the diadems on his head rules and reigns in that city. What does that have to do with us? Well, for clarity, let me oversimplify here this morning. Receive the gift of beauty and order and practice beauty and order. First of all, receive. In and of ourselves, standing alone, sin has rendered all of us ugly and disorderly. You are not beautiful by yourself. We may relatively want to compare ourselves. It's a joke before the holy splendor and majesty of God Almighty. We are an unprepared, disheveled bride who forgot the wedding day and instead played the harlot by ourselves. But he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think I can adapt that just a little bit. He made him who knew no ugliness to become ugly for us so that in him we might become the beautiful and orderly children of God. Jesus has given himself up for you and is going to present you, the church. He's going to present you and he's even going to present me to himself in splendor, Ephesians 5, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she, which is the church, might be holy and without blemish. No blemishes. It's been a bad week. Air conditioning broke, showing the air conditioning guy the unit, turned around, slammed my ear, sliced my ear. My ear is super glued together right now. By my wife, hope that goes okay. Blemishes, ingrown hairs. Got a little poison ivy right now working. No blemishes. And forget the external for a moment. The internal. Who cares about a few external blemishes when we've got all of the internal blemishes? No blemishes. Nothing. No wrinkles. No spots. No nothing. Jesus is going to present us to himself without any of that stuff perfected, glorified. He will do it. All of the beautiful garments sprinkled with blood for consecration, Jesus now covered with his own blood, cleanses 
sprinkles it out, washes you with pure water, giving you the gift of his beauty and his orderly obedience to his Father, to those who will believe it and receive it. Spend zero time shopping for the right dress or the right suit to get ready to come to that husband. You must come ugly and receive beauty. You must come disorderly to receive the orderliness of Christ. That is the only way you come and keep coming to Jesus. And only after receiving beauty, then, and only then, does the call come to us to practice beauty and order in our lives. How do you do that? You do it in worship. Worship, as the body of Christ, should be beautiful and orderly. And that is why Paul, it's no coincidence, not just a statement, that is why Paul says to the Corinthians, let all things be done decently and in order. Where is he digging that up? Well, he's digging that up because that's the nature of the worship of God always. It's according to his will, according to his structures. In the new covenant, the physicality of space has gone into a tertiary position. What has come to the forefront is the heart, the content, and the order of worship and the elements of worship that have been ordained and sanctioned by God throughout time that his people should worship him in this manner through these things. The structure of this worship service that we have had today together is not accidental. It's not random. I didn't just, you know, take a word search and throw it into the computer and say, all right, whatever comes out. From the verse that is on the front of your bulletin to the call to worship that says splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary, to each of the hymns throughout, to the confession of the Nicene Creed that talks about Jesus Christ from the beginning, very God of very God, light of light, to the readings, to a hymn that we'll sing in just a moment celebrating the beauty and the order of creation to the ironic benediction with which we will close the service, it's not an accident. It's following God's logic, God's covenantal patterns established for his people to do that which is pleasing to him because he has said, this is what is pleasing to me. Practice beauty and order in worship together as the people of God. Secondly, practice it in the holiness of life. Now, if you're paying close attention, you should have seen a conflict today between Ephesians chapter 5, if you know your Bibles, where Jesus says, I am perfecting my bride, and the passage that we read from Revelation. It should have unsettled you because you may have said there, the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And you should have said, wait a minute. How does that go with Ephesians chapter 5 where Jesus is getting his bride ready? Well, 
Jesus is the one who prepares the bride, and then he says, y'all join in. Through the power of my indwelling spirit already at work within you, through my ability to cleanse even your deeds themselves, you join in the preparation of the bride through righteous living. And finally, practice beauty and order in all of life. In your work, in your families, in your hobbies, in your homes, in how you keep your cars, in how you keep your desks, and how you keep your sheds, practice, order, and beauty. Those are all the areas where you can express your creativity, your imagination, your inventiveness. The world, as a result of sin, has been thrown out of alignment. It's off kilter. You leave it on its own, you take your hands off the wheel, and it will crash, and it will crash hard. It will descend all by itself into chaos. No effort needed on your part. Beauty and order? Oh, they take work. They take us engaging in them to overcome ugliness and disorder in the world, to bring an end if only in our small spheres, to that which is sloppy and slovenly. Now recreated in the image of God, you and I are charged to recreate burrows of beauty and order without being obsessive-compulsive. Seek to be orderly without succumbing to vanity and idolatry, where you have opportunity, make something beautiful within the capacities and spheres stored to you by the king, however big or small they may be. He is beautiful. God is beautiful. Our king, Jesus, is beautiful in every way, and he rules an orderly kingdom. Worship the king. Enjoy the king and join the king for beauty and for order. Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray.